Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at MintMobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, mathematician Marcus de Sotoy and sound artist Jamie Pereira on their musical mathematical collaboration, The Sound of Proof.
Marcus de Sotoy is Professor of Mathematics and also the Simoni Professor for the Public Understanding of Science at the University of Oxford and is an author and an old friend of Little Atoms. And Jamie Pereira is a composer and sound artist. And on today's show, we're talking about and listening to their musical mathematical collaboration, The Sound of Proof. Now on the blurb for this show on the Little Atoms website, there's a link to the Royal Northern College of Music's website and an experiment that Marcus alludes to towards the end of this show. And although it's not compulsory, it may be fun to pause now and go and have a go at that experiment before you listen to the show. So I'm joined by Marcus de Sotoy and Jamie Pereira. Marcus, the, uh, the mathematician and the old friend of Little Atoms. Jamie is a sound artist and composer. And, well, welcome to Little Atoms, both of you. Great to Hello. be back. Um, and I'll just get Jamie, tell us something about yourself, first of all, because listeners will be very familiar with Marcus. Well, I'm a composer who's moved into sonic art through various meetings. Um, and I've had a history of using relevant sound in meaningful ways so so for example if i was doing uh, a documentary about violence uh, in gangs i would use uh, the sounds of you know punches on on the human body you know so it started off as a something to alleviate boredom really and uh, and then and then transpired from there i didn't realize i was doing anything quite so meaningful until i looked back and uh, and then things moved that idea into sonification which um, is what I've been doing with Marcus. So Marcus how did the two of you meet? We met at um, the Serpentine Gallery actually um, uh, which is a great place for bringing people from very different disciplines together that's why I love working with the Serpentine Um, and they have these annual marathons which pick a theme to explore and I help advise on the marathons Um, and I can't remember Jamie what, what was the theme that year was it it was transformation. Transformation, exactly. A great word to work with. And Jamie started telling me about the work he was doing. They were they were featuring um, a piece that he was involved in, had created, which was sonifying data coming from climate change. And I thought, wow, that's really fascinating. So you'd be able to actually hear the sound of the climate changing over you know large swathes of years. But I'd been thinking at the same time about the idea that... Um, of course, maths and music has always been talked about some relationship between them. The notes we find harmonic have a mathematical connection to them. Rhythm is about number. But I thought there was something just bigger than that, which is the idea that actually a mathematical proof, the things that I create as a mathematician, have what I think are a very musical quality to them. They're about abstract things which change, mutate, transform. There are moments of revelation as things kind of fuse together. So I've been kind of interested to talk to somebody about the idea of, well, could I take mathematical proofs and make them into some sort of sound or music? So when Jamie said he was taking climate data and being able to listen to that, I offered him this challenge. It was over breakfast at the Serpentine. I said, okay, what about proofs? Could we take proofs and actually make them into sound and see whether people can hear the kind of journey that I can sort of hear when I'm reading a piece of mathematics. Do you remember what my response was when you um, when you asked me whether I could sonify a proof? I think you asked, so what's a proof? I said, I think I said <laughs> something along the lines of, yeah, of course, what, what's a proof? <laughs> so I, I started right at the beginning. And then when he explained that to you, what, did, what was your immediate thought about how, whether that was possible? Uh, well, I, I, I kind of think anything, you can sonify anything, uh, really. And, and, and that's, uh, I mean, true. 
uh, as whether you can sonify it well is, yeah. is, is the question. Um, I think the real challenge here was, you see, my first thought was um, you could change the mathematics into code, basically. Um, that is what a mathematical proof is in some ways. You start with axioms. You have rules which allow you to move those axioms to new true statements, um, which you can actually code up, and of course, uh, for a computer. So my first thought was, oh, well, maybe we take that data and just literally code it up and see what it sounds like. But I think talking to Jamie, we quickly realised that probably wasn't going to capture the sound of, you know, what I felt was the, the musical transformation in a piece of mathematics. So we decided not to go for purely coding data and, and coding uh, mathematical code but to go for the spirit of the proof and catch up that mathematical and musical journey. Jamie, just tell us briefly what you mean by sonification, first of all. We're going to play three of these proofs as we go through the programme. And in very, very basic layman non-musicians terms, two of them sound like music to me, certainly at the uh, the sort of atonal avant-garde end of classical music that Marcus is into. Um <laughs> One of them sounds much more abstract than that. Yeah. Okay, so I've been thinking about sonification. Wikipedia says that sonification is useful for creating an interpretation that has frequency and all of the qualities that sound bring to something you know, over time. It's a temporal thing. And then it says that sonification doesn't really have a set uh, method. And I would add to the first bit by saying... Actually, a lot of the worth in sonification is the emotional aspect that it provides to something that might not otherwise have that um, aspect to it. So it's been an incredible journey in discovering that some of our interpretations actually have personalities. Um, And then the second part of it is I do think that there is a kind of, you know, abstract kind of procedure for sonification. First of all, you have to have an object to be considered. Uh, In this case, it was aspects of a proof, but it could equally be points in space. It could be data. It could be people. It all depends, you know, what what you're looking at. Then there must be an interpretation of the object over time and space. Then, and this is the crucial thing and a commitment on my part, and it's just my opinion, that there has to be some sort of interpretation that's algorithmic, as in you create interpretative rules that you might stick to in order to give the interpretation some sort of, I don't know, uh, value, I suppose, or maybe uh, reliability, I'm not sure. This is where it might differentiate from just an open musical interpretation in a way. It's the only anchor that I've found that is a real step to say I'm committing to that, and that's what makes it a sonification. And then the very last thing is the overall interpretation should make a sound as it's a sonification. Well, I'll sort of leave that word algorithmic hang in there for a second and Marcus as we've just mentioned you know I think every time you've been on the show before we've ended up talking about music in in some sort of form and the last time we talked about the mad decision to just learn the the cello Um, and you you know you're you're a musician yourself anyway but also I think you know you're I mean I'd be right to say that your taste in music is also informed by the fact that you're a mathematician and it sort of like tends to that end of the sort of musical spectrum where you can see the influence of of maths. Yeah, I think it does. I mean I'm a big fan of uh, uh 20th century music, also baroque music mm-hmm. and I think the 20th century is a kind of uh picking up the mantle of people like Bach. But actually you know what uh, I mean I'm a big fan of Schubert as well, you know, uh and I think that 
the point is that all musicians are exploring structure. And in the 20th century, you can see the structures have uh, quite a mathematical flavour because very often they're on the search for interesting new structures. So you might have someone like uh, Olivier Messiaen who's using prime numbers to keep things out of sync mm-hmm. or Yanis um, uh, Senakis using the symmetries of a cube to do theme and variation. Um, so you see explicit mathematical objects there. But but I think that even when you go back to someone like Schubert where you start, might say, well, that's much more emotional and romantic, I think that's... You know, if you talk to any composer, they're always talking about structure first, emotion appearing out of the embedding of structure. Um, it, it's an emotional reaction to that satisfying recognition of connection as the piece uh, evolves. So, but you're right. I think 20th century music is the place that I, you know, I love. I loved listening and being. So now this idea has been put out there, you're going to make sonifications of these proofs. How do you narrow down which ones you're going to do? Well, for me, it was kind of obvious because you go to where proof began, really, which is Euclid. And my favourite proof uh, was the one I first offered Jamie, which is um, the proof that there are infinitely many prime numbers. Mm-hmm. I think primes already have quite a interesting rhythmic structure to them because they're about things which don't quite mesh. And, and you see, for example, Messiaen using them yeah. uh, to create certain effects. So I thought that was one that would appeal to Jamie as a kind of musician. But once I'd done that one, I thought, oh, that'd be lovely. Why don't we sonify Euclid's elements? And so I went through and found five different proofs which had different qualities. There are geometric proofs in Euclid about building particular shapes. There are uh, algorithmic proofs. There are arithmetic proofs. So I felt that Euclid already captured many different elements of proof, proof by contradiction. So that was, I thought, a great place to begin. And, you know, what a lovely idea, sonifying Euclid's elements. And Jamie, as Marcus just mentioned, you mentioned Messiaen and one thinks of, you know, the quartet for the end of time which is you know one that uses prime numbers so when he first presents this idea to you is that a good way in for you well i not really experienced anything like this before (laughs) like i mean obviously my first reaction was yeah i can sort of what's a proof i mean I, i might have been slightly hamming it up there but the truth was we had a the first proof i think my first stab at it was just looking at symbols on a on a screen and just going what on earth am I going to do and and I did try the literal interpretation route which kind of lasted about seven seconds so feeding back it was um it was a case of going well okay well that's that but how do we make it slightly more accessible and then that sort of you know influenced a kind of enlarging of the way the the narrative of the the proof was explored so the first proof I mean we were quite speedy afterwards but the first proof um, the proof of primes took about two years to, <laughs> to get our heads around so I think we were also getting to know each other in that time through sporadic meetings as yes well. that's right I mean there was a lovely kind of element of just sitting down and seeing whether I could uh, bring alive what I found so exciting the moments of jeopardy and the proof so it, it was great to have Jamie who didn't automatically get it so it, it uh, that was really helpful in a way so we really found well what is the essence of this proof that's mm-hmm. partly why I love doing uh, communicating science to the public because I 
I have to understand my subject, they're so much deeper to be able to communicate it. So, you know, we sat over these proofs and, you know, I didn't know where this was going to go. Jamie didn't either, but mm. but it was a real beautiful collaboration that we would sit there in his studio and, you know, as we tease out, well, gosh, what are we going to, what's, what is halving <laughs> something going to be? So we would take a theme and, and think about what halving it would mean or um, dividing. And gradually we built up this kind of, I would say, a dictionary which allowed us a way to sort of move between mathematical idea to musical concept. And, and then there were just wonderful moments when we'd sit there, sort of program this thing up. The, the kind of software that Jamie uses was very flexible for kind of doing mathematical ideas. We, and then we would do this thing, we'd play it and we'd go, Wow! That sounds amazing, you know. Steve Reich would love this. So uh, it was lovely, the surprises. That's all you want in creative acts. I mean, in mathematics, that's what I'm after, those surprise moments. And we've got lots of those where things just came out that sounded really surprising and, and new. I'm Caitlin Doty. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. Okay, so I said we're going to listen to to three of these sonifications, and what we've also got is Marcus explaining the proofs and explaining how that proof works in the sonification, which we've recorded earlier, and we'll play the first one of those now. One of my favourite proofs in the whole of mathematics is the proof that there are infinitely many prime numbers. It's one of the first proofs in the history of mathematics going back 2,000 years. It's in Euclid's Elements, and it's a beautiful argument which just uses the finite mind to prove that something goes on to infinity. Prime number is a number which is indivisible, like 7 or 17 or 3. What the Greeks discovered is that these are like the atoms of mathematics, so you can make any other number by multiplying these prime numbers together. So a number like 15 is not prime, but it can be built out of the primes 3 times 5. Number 6 isn't prime. It can be made out of 2 times 3. So the interesting thing for the ancient Greeks was, well, could you get away with finitely many of these atoms? Could you build all numbers by multiplying just combinations of a few of these numbers together? And this is what they discovered you couldn't do. So in this little piece, we've kind of explored whether we can actually sonify that extraordinary discovery. So we're going to start with two prime numbers, two indivisible numbers. And the challenge is maybe we can make everything, all other numbers, out of these two very simple primes. So we're going to start with the number three. It's... uh, indivisible number, a prime number, and it creates a nice kind of little waltz rhythm. And now we're going to introduce the next prime number, which is going to be the prime number two. And out of twos, we can already make twos, fours, eights, sixteens, so we get a little sort of march rhythm. challenge now is what can you make out of combinations of twos and threes? Mm -hmm. 
Now we introduce a third voice, which is going to explore what can you make out of twos and threes. And what it discovers is that out of twos and threes, you can make sixes, twelves, nines. So perhaps it's possible to make every number out of combinations of these simple twos and threes. But there's a challenge ahead. Euclid said, "What if you take the number two and three, multiply them together, and then add one to that number? This new number cannot be made out of multiples of twos and threes because you always get remainder one. So this new number, two times three plus one, seven, is a new challenge which can't be made out of waltzes and marches." So let's add seven into the mix and hear our mathematical voice wrestling with what you can do with these three atomic rhythms of two, three, and seven. So we can do so much more with these three atomic numbers two, three, and seven, but can we do everything? Euclid says no, because we play the same trick again. We multiply two times three times seven, and add one to that, and suddenly we've got a new challenge. The number forty-three cannot be made out of these three rhythms, and so the piece of music keeps on going to infinity. So let's hear Euclid's proof. That there are infinitely many primes. Listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Marcus de Sautoy and Jamie Pereira, and we're talking about their joint project, The Sound of Proof. Jamie, I guess, do you want to say something about how that one came together? As we've listened to Marcus for a while. Sure. I mean, this one's the proof out of all 
the five we've done so far that I really head buttered my way through because um, I had to kind of get a grounding in in the proof and uh, there were quite a lot of failed attempts um, but once um, I decided on which musical values represented which elements of the proof it was a really fun exercise in sitting back and watching the, the sonification of the proof evolve on its own there are some rhythms and uh, well counter rhythms uh, and uh, struggles musical struggles in um, the proof of primes that i would never have composed mm-hmm. uh, and and it's actually given me a really interesting perspective on how numbers fit together in terms of rhythm in composition you know as as a revelation you know so i thought it was incredibly uh, rewarding and uh, and i think it's uh, it turned out to also emotionally uh well it turned out to have a little personality so the, the the first part of the the proof that you hear where it's kind of slightly self-satisfied i think think this was something that we thought might happen but but it took the musical uh interpretation of that for us to go oh well well that is exactly how it feels you know and then there's uh the the part of the proof that's kind of saying actually uh uh-uh. uh no, I think you called it the Eureka moment. Yeah. Yeah. But um for me it was it was something that was just it was like a baddie kind of coming and sort of like going, uh uh-uh, uh, it's not gonna be that easy. Try this. And then you've got that struggle where um six is trying to fit itself the me- the melody of um three, five and six and seven. seven. Yeah, yeah, seven. so six plus one, yeah. yeah, so, yeah, exactly, yeah. It's, it's trying to fit itself into this rhythm of seven and it's struggling to do so and you can hear the melody struggling, you know, emotionally. So, so that was that was a lot of fun. I think, I think you can hear the kind of narrative elements um, in, in the way that Jamie's explained that. It is a story, and, I, and I, you know, these are abstract things that the story is about. And you could say that that's similar to uh, to music. You know, I, I don't like making music into a story where, you know, it's, oh, it's somebody on a horse we're going across the landscape, but it is a story of evil, uh, the way things evolve, change, mutate, become something else, fuse. It's funny because you'd think mathematics didn't have a time element to it, wouldn't you? I mean, it's sort of a timeless, the proof. Yet I think that the new, the logical steps produce a kind of timeline, which is what we've captured in these pieces. Marcus, what did you think when you first heard... I mean, I guess you were involved through it but what did you think when you first heard a substantial part of this having sort of put out there this idea to do it i was very excited because it it absolutely captured the spirit of what i was hoping we were going to realize which is that no you can translate this kind of story into an another abstract world of of sound and and hear the evolution the moment when things change and 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 become something else but as you say this was quite striking that we were able to create a piece. I think this has a very musical uh, sound to it. It's it's not just sound, it is music. Uh, and I think that, there, as Jamie said, this pushes you into different areas where you would do things that you wouldn't normally think about doing. And I, and I hope this might be an inspiration as a toolkit for other people to think, oh, yeah, well, you know, what would I do 
with the idea of um, meshing those particular numbers together. I mean, it's something that Steve Wright loved. He he went to uh, he loved Ghanaian rhythms because they're the combination of the twos and threes. So you see that he's already playing those sort of games of incompatibility um, in his work. But yeah, that that uh, it was very exciting to hear it. Um, and we had some tooling and froing where I said, well, I don't think that's captured it quite yet, and our, and and we would work further on it so um uh, it was a, a real collaboration let's go on to the second proof then so what was this one the second proof actually taps into one of the other big themes in euclid which is geometry and i thought geometry would be interesting to explore because music when it's written down has a kind of geometry to it and bach plays around a lot with the uh, geometric games you can play with musical notes um so the Euclid has a lot of things about creating, you know, how to how do you make a perfect pentagon out of a straight line and a compass? Um, but sort of one of the first proofs um, is about a triangle embedded inside a circle. Um, so I thought uh, it'd be interesting to see whether this would kind of inspire a, a different way of sonifying things. If we think, well, OK, I'm drawing stuff on a piece of paper. So I started drawing things to Jamie and we kind of went from there. This is one of the very first geometric proofs done by the ancient Greeks, and it's a proof in two-dimensional geometry. So we're actually going to be drawing with sound in this proof. So how are we going to create a kind of two-dimensional picture in sound? So we need two dimensions, and the two dimensions we're going to use are... The first dimension is panning from left to right. So you're going to hear lines drawn through your head, uh, literally from one side of your head to the other. And the second dimension that we're going to use is the pitch, which is the frequency. So um, high is going to be at the top of the page and a low frequency note is going to be at the bottom. So this geometric proof starts with a circle. So let's hear the sound of a circle. So now we're back at the top of the circle. So you should have heard the circle being drawn from the top, anti-clockwise round to the left, hitting the bottom and then coming back up again to the top point. Now from this point, we're going to draw a triangle sitting inside the circle. So we're going to start at a point we'll call A, which is at the top of the circle. And our first line is going to be a diameter across the circle down to point B at the bottom of the circle. Now, the next bit of the triangle is out to the left. We're going to choose a random point on the left-hand side of the circle, which we'll call C, and we're going to draw a line from point A to point C, and then from point C 
down to point B. So what you're going to hear is the diameter drawn at the same time as the two short sides of the triangle from point A to C, then C to B. So now we're at point B at the bottom of our triangle. This theorem is all about what is the angle at point C. So we've chosen an arbitrary point on our circle to make this triangle. So maybe the angle is different according to different choices of that point C. But it turns out that the angle is independent of your choice and the proof works out what that angle is. So the challenge here is if we move back to point C, what is the angle? And we're going to represent the angle by a particular sort of sound. Now, at first sight, that angle looks like, or sounds like, it could be absolutely anything. But the inspired move that the ancient Greeks made was to draw a new line into this picture. And this line goes from the point C, the random point that we've chosen on our circle, all the way through to the centre of the circle, which we're going to call O. So we should be sitting right in the middle of your head and the middle of the frequencies. This is the centre of the circle. And any line from the centre of the circle to the circle itself is, of course, a radius. And we've got quite a few of these lines now. We've got a line from O up to A, a line from O to C, and a line down from O to B. And these all have the same length. So we've actually got a lot of triangles now. We've got our big triangle that we've started with, but by drawing in this new line, we've now got two smaller triangles which piece together to make this larger triangle. So we're going to analyse the angles inside these two smaller triangles. So we're going to start by moving back up to point A at the top of our picture, and we're going to explore what the angle is at A. So you just heard the angle at A, but we've got one of these small triangles which consists of the triangle between A, C and O at the centre. And the interesting thing about this triangle is that two of the sides are equal. The length from C to O is the radius of the circle, which is the same as the length from O up to A. Now, this means that if you've got two equal lines as part of a triangle, two of the angles must also be equal. So the angle at A, which we've just heard, is actually the same as the angle made by A to C to O. So let's go back down to C and hear the angle at C, which is part of this triangle A, C, O. 
So what we're interested in is the angle from A to C to B. What we've just heard is the angle from A to C to the centre of the circle at O. So we've got a piece of the angle we're trying to work out. But now we need to work out the other piece. So this is the angle from O back to C and then down to B. Now this angle is actually the same as the angle down at B. So this is the angle between C, B and O. Why? Because again, we've got one of these triangles where two of the sides are equal in length. If you think about the length from C to O, that's a radius of the circle, as is the line from B to O. So because we've got two lines which are equal in length, we also know two angles are equal. So if we move back down to B, then the angle at B is actually the same as the angle we've just heard from O to C to B. So we've just heard four different angles. We've heard the angle at the top A, then we've heard the angle from A to C to O, the centre of the circle, and then the angle from O to C down to B, and then the angle at the point B. What we're going to do now is to add these four angles together. So these four angles actually add up to make the angles inside the larger triangle. But we know what the angles in a triangle add up to. They add up to 180 degrees. So if we actually now rearrange these angles, we can put them in an order that will actually hear the angles sweep out 180 degrees, which is essentially half a circle. So these four angles add up to 180 degrees. But what were these four angles? We had the angle down at B, which was actually the same as the angle from B to C to O. So let's call both of those angles beta. So we've got beta plus beta. And then we've got two more angles. Remember, we've got the angle right at the top, which is at A. We'll call that one alpha. But we also worked out that that was the same as the angle from A to C to O. So actually we've got beta plus beta plus alpha plus alpha comes to 180 degrees. So that's 2 beta plus 2 alpha is 180. Well, if we half that, then we've got beta 
plus alpha is equal to 90 degrees. But beta plus alpha is the angle at C. So now we've worked out that the angle at C is in fact an exact right angle, 90 degrees. So this is a proof constructed by a Greek mathematician called Thales, which shows that if I take a diameter across a circle and then form a triangle from some arbitrary point on the circle to this diameter, that the angle we always get is 90 degrees. So let's hear Thales' proof.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Marcus de Sotoy and Jamie Pereira. And we're talking about their joint project, The Sound of Proof. Yeah, Jamie, this one sounds to me more what I would describe as a sonification. So tell me something about how this one came together. I had watched a talk, and this is kind of around the same time, I, was, I think it was a, a artistic practice which involved drawing and the artist I, I'm, sorry, I'm racing to remember the artist's name and I'm very sorry to this artist for not remembering who it is but um, there was a thing that he said which was something to do with taking he was interested in the journey of the pencil or the paintbrush as over time as this painting was created and all of a sudden I, I, I felt like uh, the painting had been turned on its side and you could see these lines like moving through the air over time so and obviously obviously because um i i want to turn that into sound so um it seemed and I, I was also experimenting in in representing uh sort of shapes in sound at the same time so it was it was a perfect match in terms of the uh, the way uh, Talis's, uh theorem works and it just led to a simple representation of shapes and sound using uh, panning and frequency. It definitely wasn't... I mean, it wasn't easy. <laughs> no, this uh, wasn't easy. I, I think this is one of the proofs that possibly might have had us just just sweating. Imagine two of us in a small studio, just heads bowed, just going, what are we doing? But I think this yeah, one but... actually had a more a sort of literal coding to it because mm. we were we took this idea of okay frequency uh you know up and down the page will be frequency uh panning left and right will be uh, going moving uh from left to right on the page so let's code that up so i think this one is is, yeah, is closer to to a, to a literal coding of the the pictures that i was drawing to prove this theorem I'm Natalie Haynes, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Marcus, we'll go on to the third proof. We're staying with Euclid. What's this one? This one's a rather beautiful idea of um, if you... It's actually related to something people might have heard of, like uh, which is called Zeno's Paradox or Achilles and the Tortoise. The idea if that um, if I cover half the ground, then a quarter, then an eighth, then a sixteenth, do I eventually get to my destination? And this is uh, Zeno saying that um, an arrow can't hit its target because it's got to do infinitely many things before it gets there. But Euclid shows that you can add up infinitely many things and get something which is finite. So it's a formula. It shows you how to add up these infinite many fractions and, and get something complete. So this one was really fun actually to uh, explain. I think it's it's not too difficult to get your head around how it works. It's, it's quite magical because you, the way the proof works seems kind of tricky. Um, you seem to wonder why you're going in a certain direction. I mean it's, it's really... Actually I looked at Roland Barthes' um, analysis of what narrative is and he has kind of uh, five different qualities of narrative and and one of them is this idea of suspense so you make uh, local moves in a story and you're not quite sure why you're going there but you carry on reading because you want to know that's weird why are you doing that why is that happening why is that happening and this has that quality to it where suddenly you go I don't know why, why are you doing that and then suddenly the whole thing goes whoosh and um, you go oh my gosh and now I see why oh that's so clever so that's sort of the emotional journey in this proof. But it had some interesting elements which we played with, which is, you know, well, what does it mean to half 
um, something? How are we going to keep on halving something? There are many different ways we could do that. And we played around with them. But I think we came up with one which was musically, in the end, really interesting. Not so obvious. When, you know, you think, oh, a half, I'm just going to half the, the melody or something. But we did something slightly different so it would all fit together in an interesting way. And Jamie Marcus just said that this one was, was fun to work on. This one's also fun to listen to. Tell me about it, this one coming together. This one was relatively simple. It's just, it was, I mean, it, it was very, very quick and very tuneful. And it's got a huge nod to Steve Reich, hasn't it? It's well, just... I think when we finished it, we go, oh, Steve will love this. Yeah, oh, we've got to play this to Steve. <laughs> but it's not something I think he's ever done before. The kind of And it really relied on Jamie's... I think the software that you had allowed us to do this. Um, because, you know, we would like... What we did was to take a, a tune, half it, then stretch it so it, it filled the space of the previous tune. And then we we kind of took a three quarters of it and stretched that. And um, I think the technology allowed us to do things and hear what they sounded like very quickly. Yeah. What was the what was the the, the, the smallest division that we made? well we did a thirty one over thirty two. Or did we even do a 63rd over a 64? I think we might have done well, a 63rd. Well, you almost can't hear it. Which is very difficult to play. <laughs> yeah. I think that's why I thought about Steve Reich is because of his piano phase, where he has mm. two pianos um, where they're playing the same thing, but one starts to go at a slightly different pace. And you almost can't detect when it happens. And to be able to play that is really tough. You know, I mean, the, one of the pianists needs to click uh, in their ear to be able to not listen to the other person. And I think... We managed to, because of the technology, we were able to do things with such fine control that I think live, which we'd love to do, will be quite tricky, but not impossible. Not impossible. No. OK, let's listen to it. In this proof, we're going to try and sonify adding up infinitely many things and seeing what it comes to. This is a proof that you find in Euclid's Elements, and it's called Summing a Geometric Progression. So to do this, we need to start with one thing that we're gradually going to add more and more things to. So we're going to take a particular musical theme as our basic cell, and then we're going to play with that. So let's create the thing that we're going to build our proof from. So what we're going to do is to add half of that tune to itself, and then we're going to add half of that on again, and we're going to keep on halving the tune, adding smaller and smaller pieces on, and we're going to add infinitely many pieces together and see what we get. So first of all, we need to think, well, how are we going to create half the tune that we've started with? So the way we're going to do this is we're actually going to take half the tune, but in order that we can add it on to the tune we've already heard, we're going to stretch that out so it actually has the same time length but consists of just half the tune. So we can layer that over the top of A and then we hear the two together. So that's rather nice. Um, so what we're going to do now is to add a quarter of the tune, which, uh, by the way, that's what I called A, onto this again. So we're going to get three quarters of A, and we're going to stretch that out again such that it has the same time length as the original tune A. So now let's add that onto the original tune A again and hear what it sounds like.
So you can probably guess what we're going to do. We're going to keep on adding a half of the tune A onto itself again and again and again. And gradually we're going to hear more and more of the original tune stretched a little bit. And the challenge is, when I've done this infinitely many times, what is the resulting sound? So let's hear us gradually build up the sound of A plus a half A plus a quarter of A plus an eighth of A plus a sixteenth of A plus one thirty-tooth of A plus one sixty-fourth of A and so on. So how did mathematicians prove what this is equal to when you work out the sum to infinity? Well, let's call that answer n, and we're going to try and calculate what n is. Now, you might think that, well, maybe the whole thing just blows up because I'm adding infinitely many things together, and so perhaps the answer is infinity. But it turns out it isn't. So how do we prove what n is? Well, we're going to do something rather strange, because first of all, we're going to take 2 times n, and then take n away from 2n, which, of course, the answer is then n. So that sounds really stupid. But when you look at how we've pieced together our tune, you'll see that actually this helps us to find out really what n is. So we're going to take 2 times n, but then we're going to take n away. So what we're going to build up now is the sound of taking this infinite tune n away from 2n. So we're going to build up the tune again, but we're going to do it in a slightly different way. So we're going to hit a, and then we're going to take half of a away. And this time, half of a is going to be represented by, again, half the tune, but we're going to take the last half of the tune, and we're going to stretch that out. So let's hear taking away half A. And we're going to use a slightly different musical sound to represent taking away. So we're going to have a kind of marimba sound to represent subtracting. So that was subtracting half A. And we also need to subtract A itself if we're going to build up taking away the whole infinite sum. So let's hear taking away A and half A together. So now we're going to take away a quarter of A. And the way we're going to do this is actually to hear the last quarter of the tune A, and we're going to stretch that out so it has the same time length as A. So we can hear the tune as it gets stretched out and halved, getting slower and slower. So let's add this one on to minus A and hear what it sounds like. So now we need to carry this process on to infinity. So we're going to hear what minus an eighth A sounds like, then minus a sixteenth, minus a thirty-tooth, minus one sixty-fourth, and so on.
So how does this help? Well, we're trying to calculate what n is, which is a plus a half a plus a quarter a plus an eighth a and so on. And what we did was to take two times this whole infinite sum. So that was two times n. And then we took n away from it. Now, something really clever happens here, because if we double that infinite series, we get 2a plus a plus a half a plus a quarter a and so on. But if we then take n away, we're taking away a and half a and a quarter of a. And if you look at these infinite series, nearly every term gets cancelled by being taken away in the marimba tune. So what we get left with is actually the final answer for what n is. So if we're going to hear this, what we need to do is to have our infinite sum where we built the thing up, then our marimba sound where we took the things away, and find out what on earth we get left with. So you heard the answer there, which is that this infinite sum is actually two copies of A. And so we've proved that if you take A plus a half A plus a quarter of A plus an eighth of A plus a sixteenth of A all the way up to infinity, the answer isn't infinite. It's 2A, quadrat demonstrandum, as they say in ancient Greece. So let's hear the complete proof that the geometric series a plus a half a plus a quarter a plus an eighth a all the way up to infinity is actually just equal to 2a. So we've listened to three of the proofs. So what other ones did you do? Well, we had the first ever algorithm. We were talking about algorithms in this kind of 21st century age that were controlled by algorithms to tell us um, to, to listen to Little Atoms Radio. If you like Little Atoms Radio, you'll also like um, uh, Marx's books, Music of the Prime. So algorithms control our lives. But what you don't realise is the first algorithm was right back in Euclid. Um, so this is a way 
given two numbers to find the largest number which divides both of those numbers. And that's that worked quite nicely. I, I think people enjoy listening to that one. And then uh, the last one, which actually was the second one we tackled, was a really weird one. Because this one, in a way, we sort of tried to follow the proof, which is proving that the square root of 2 cannot be written as a fraction. It's an example of something called an irrational number. It's a proof by contradiction. So what happens in the proof is that um, what you hear is that the implications of if it was a fraction, you tease out. And, and you, we sort of get a musical contradiction by the end, which is the thing sort of shoots off to infinity. Uh, and you realise that, well, this just can't work. So, so those are the other two proofs. Different quality of proof from the others, actually. You just mentioned talking about the third proof, the possibility or not of playing that one live, Jamie. But we are here to talk about the fact that there's been these live events. There was an event at New Scientist Live, an event at the Manchester Science Festival. In fact, there's another event tonight, meaning the, the day that this podcast goes out at Manchester Science Festival. Tell us about those events. What, what happened at those or what is happening? Um, well, it was a discussion around uh, whether you can hear maths and music, I think. And... But there is some music. There is some... Well, the, the, this is... Uh, so I actually was talking to another composer, um, Emily Howard, yes. um, who took... Uh, it was not the kind of direct um, connection that we were looking for. She's taken a much more sort of creative path through this challenge of proof in music. So, um, for example, she's been looking... Uh, one of the things I love is how you can algebraically transform one thing into another. She took the challenge of taking um, a piece of Beethoven and transforming it into a piece of Schubert, for example. So I, I think she's taken the ideas but put them into her language. So so this was actually performed by a string quartet and, and again, captures a different kind of quality of proof. But um, the event in Manchester is going to look at the challenge of well, in in all of these pieces of music uh, which use some mathematical structures, are you aware of them? Is it important that you're aware of them? Do you need to know that Messiaen used prime numbers or uh, that Bach is using symmetrical tricks? Uh, and so we're going to be exploring uh, that. And one of the challenges we thought was would be interesting and is if you listen to these soundscapes and I tell you the five proofs, can you match the proofs to the soundscapes? So we've had this running as an experiment and uh, people can still do the experiments. Um, so hopefully um, people might have done the experiment before they started listening to this and find out some of the answers. And we've collected that data and it, it was quite striking that people really can't hear. It's almost random. And I even we've asked people about their mathematical ability because, you know, obviously if you don't know the maths, maybe it's really difficult to to decode so we, uh, i looked at people who had very high mathematical ability they don't seem to be able to match them <laughs> musical <laughs> ability no no so so it's interesting i think we might have captured something which is quite personal to jamie and my kind of interaction with this information and maybe that's all right maybe you know if you enjoy listening to them you don't need to know where it comes from a builder does not leave up the scaffolding so maybe that's what we're doing we've used some mathematics as a scaffolding, but created something which exists in its own right. And it's maybe, that's the point about art. It's a bit more ambiguous and mysterious. So perhaps you shouldn't know how it's put together. Okay, so I've been talking to Marcus de Sotoy and Jamie Pereira. We've been talking about and listening to The Sound of Proof, their mathematical musical project. Marcus and Jamie, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with me. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. 
You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.